We're starting a new sermon series called Tension. Now, as I say that word, are you guys tensing up? Can you imagine what it's like every day when each one of us have series of events, things that we have each day that cause tension? When you wake up in the morning, there's tension. When you hear the alarm go off, it's tension because you know you have to go to work. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom and uh, you have to take care of your kids in the morning, uh, that could be tense. It could be a bit stressful. And, you know, when you think about it, um, sometimes tension is good. If you're trying to pull out a big stump in your front yard and you need your chains and you need something really strong and you got to pull it out. I know some of you would say just use a stump grinder, but if you have to just pull out something that doesn't require a stump grinder, but maybe just a little bit smaller than that typical big stump and you have to cut back out of it and try to pull it out, sometimes you need a little rope or a chain and you have to try to use some force. And so uh, some of those things that we have, you intention, there's pulling, there's pushing, there's force, all of that is happening. Well, when you think about as a gymnast, I think of, when I think of tension, I think there has to be balance within tension. Can you imagine a gymnast who's trying to walk on a balance beam? And if I had a balance beam, I was trying to figure that out. You may see next one next week, although it won't be high off the ground because I will fall. I'm not very good with balance. But can you imagine if you're walking on that balance beam? Look, there's no balance beam. I'm almost ready to fall. And it's like, you know, you're doing this, but you have this thing where you have to keep your balance before you may have, you're going to fall. Can you imagine when a gymnast has to create a routine, do a flip, do a cartwheel, do something, do flips, and then land on that balance beam perfectly so that when the judges are there to judge them, they give them a 9.3, 9.7, but some fall off and then they go from anywhere in the nines down to eights and then if they fall off twice, they're pretty much done. Just take them off the list. But the tense, stressful, imagine all the tense and the stress going on with that gymnast that has to perform so perfectly. And so tense and tension kind of situations could be created when we think we have to perform perfectly. And so when we think about all of that, tension can exist in so many areas in our marriages, as a parent, when we're parenting young children, and sometimes we're having to parent older children, when they're going through stress and difficulties, when they don't have a job, when they're having to support their wife and children, and you're sitting back and saying, this is the time where I've got to step in. But then there are times when you have to pray and say, God, do you want me to step in? Maybe they need to learn something in this journey, in this process. And then you have your jobs. You go to work and you can't stand going to work. You can't stand clocking in. You can't stand your boss. You just can't stand work. And you just hate it. And it's so tense. You just get up in the morning and you're ready to get your clothes on. You're like, like this because you know it's going to be very tense. I recall when I was working as a, as a seminary student, I was in a, an insurance company, and it was non-standard insurance, which means the people who were calling on the other end were not very nice. So I, had, I was a claims adjuster, I was an LPD adjuster, I was official, and I had 200 files to maintain working 30 to 40 hours a week while I was going to school for 40 hours. So as I said before when I was preaching, I'd leave at 5 o'clock in the morning, get home about 11, 12 o'clock at night. 
And I can assure you that every time the phone came through and I had to receive it, it was very, very stressful. I was ready with defense. The mechanism was up. The wall was up. I was ready. I was so tense, ready to take the call because I knew someone was going to yell and scream and curse at me. I know you guys think that's crazy, but that's how it was. More of my calls, 60 to maybe 70%, were very tense. And so when you think about it, jobs can be incredibly stressful. How about a high school student who's trying to perform to get their grades up? How about a high school student who needs to keep their grades now today about a 3.5 or better to get into a college to potentially get a scholarship because college tuition is at its highest? I can tell you, I went two years ago to look at the tuition and I got tensed up. My wife and I had an argument all day while we were there looking at the college. I had to confess and repent at the end of the day, but I was frustrated because I saw big numbers, very big, 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 very big numbers. And I just sat there and just went like, how in the world are we going to be able to afford this? And we can. And yet God still got my daughter into the school because he worked it out. But all of these stresses and tension that exists in our lives. And so as believers in Christ, as we desire to walk closer with God, have a relationship with him, enjoy his presence, when we know that tensing comes up and stress comes up, we know we have to confess sin, that we have to face our sin, that we have to come face to face with recognizing when we go before the presence of God that we have to agree what God calls sin is sin in our lives. And sometimes we sneak it under the rug, we push it aside, we throw it in a closet, we hide it, we just say, look, you know, if I could just hide it from God, I know he's omniscient, he's, om- he's omnipresent, he can see all things, but maybe he can't see this one. I'm going to hide it right in the corner behind all my blankets and everything, behind all the stuff that I have, and maybe God won't see that sin. But he has x-ray vision like Superman, and he can see through all that stuff. But all of this to say that tension can even exist in our relationship with God. And more and often, too, it becomes this, 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 this thing where we're asking this question. And more often, we would like to admit that this is a very difficult task. But could we ever think that in tension and walking with God that we could have unity and peace and joy? But instead, in churches and in ministry and in relationship with one another, we have disunity, we have wars, and we have misery. This is a reality. It's not just particularly because you guys are going through a, a transition as a church, but it's in most churches. Why? Because people exist in churches. People exist in bodies of people together, and it happens. But here's the thing. This is why God wants to work on something. How can a church, with the midst, in the midst of people who come together, who are warring in their members, warring in themselves, how can they come together in unity? How can they create an atmosphere where there can be forgiveness rather than tension? stress and misery and wars. I mean, as we see it throughout Scripture, we understand that we we know that God is interested in unity. Why? Because it starts with the Trinity. I mean, the Trinity in and of itself creates a harmonious unity, a relationship where God is three persons in one, yet they have, in essence, the same, but their roles are different, and they complement one another. 
They don't fight over which role they play. They know each other and they work together as a team. It's that unity that exists that God so pours out through his apostle Paul saying that he would desire for his people to have that unity as well. And that unity occurs when you have an atmosphere of forgiveness in the midst of a people. I mean, it's so hard for all of us because most of you only see each other for about, what, 20 minutes out of the week? (laughs) If that, you get about five minutes during the meet and greet. You don't even get five minutes. You get about 90 seconds. And you say hello, you go back out there. After church, you go back out there and you talk to one another. Maybe some of you don't. Some of you just sneak out of here. But unity can't occur if you don't spend any time together. But also, disunity can occur because when you don't spend time with each other, we assume things about people. We make judgments. We look at people, we hear stories, and then we assume things. And then that creates disunity and war and misery. But unity can occur if we spend a little more time together. If you notice, when people get together in life groups, or when people get together working together as a team, all of a sudden people are starting to get along. They may have some, some you know, little arguments and all that, but they get along. The tension can occur, but unity can occur as well. And so as, we, as we're looking at this particular series, we're talking about truth and grace. There's a tension that exists between truth and grace. And in the book of John, I want you to just open up with me to the book of John in chapter 1. Because we know that in chapter 1, there's a specific verse there that highlights who Jesus is. Remember the Gospels. If you would generally look at the Gospels, you would look. Matthew speaks of Jesus as being the king. The audience are the Jews. Mark is Jesus is the servant. The audience is Aramaic and, and more of majority. Luke is the perfect man the God-man, and then you have, or the perfect man, and then you have Jesus being portrayed in the book of John as deity, God in flesh. And so in chapter 1, we know that, John 1, 1, we know John 1, 14, we know that he came as the incarnate Christ. But then you look down at verse 17, and it says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Some would say, wait a minute, now did Jesus have 50% grace and 50% truth? What does it mean to be full of grace and truth? I mean, it's a paradox. It's inconsistent. Because many will say truth is very starch and specific and it highlights and identifies. It calls people out. Sometimes can be unemotional, not sympathetic, not really caring for the individual telling the truth tells it straight like it is and walks away. When your boss goes up to you and tells you you're not, and evaluates you and says you're not doing a good job and then walks away and doesn't give you any kind of correction or help or any kind of guidance, what begins to happen? You walk away and go, boy, that was great. Sure glad he just put me down and didn't give me any chance to understand as to what I have to do to improve. Well, see, the beauty of God is that when he shares truth and when Jesus is truth, we understand that He's there to correct us as well. I mean, as we look at this and understand that there's a paradox that occurs, we have to understand that Jesus ministered in this way. Think of the stories and the narratives in the book of John, the woman at the well, even mentioned last week through Alex, or the healing of the paralytic in chapter 5, how Jesus had to minister truth and grace. And then we look at the adulterous woman, which we're going to look at shortly today. 
and then the blind man in chapter 9, and then even Pontius Pilate in chapter 19. Throughout the narratives in the book of John, we see truth and grace at work. And so God is trying to say, but before we look at truth and grace, we have to ask the question, what is the law? Well, the law was established through Moses at Mount Sinai, given to the people of God, the Israelites, in order to walk in purity before the Lord so that the people of God who have a relationship with God and represent Him well to all the Gentile nations. So the law was given so that the people of God can know how to please God and to be in His presence. See, God can't be in the presence of sin. See, we have this aspect or thinking today in our Western mindset here in Church of America that sin can be present at any time and God will be present with it. And what I mean by sin is that it's blatant habitual sin. It's not the mistakes that we make. It's not the unintentional sins, but sometimes the intentional sins. And even within our intentional sins, God's still roaming around trying to get you and I to confess our sins. And God is still open to mercy and grace. Because in Exodus chapter 34, when we know that Moses was coming down from the mountain, he was received a note from the Lord that's saying that he was abounding in love and mercy and grace. And see, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory was the visible glory of God's presence. And the glory shone through the Son of God, was the same glory shown through Moses. And the connection of the Old Testament is in connection with the New Testament. And you see the parallels even in the book of Hebrews that shows Moses and Jesus, and in Numbers, and even in the book of Numbers, and even in other books. But we see this so clear that it's, it's established that the law is still sufficient today because it's perfect, it's holy. It's not sufficient to save someone from their sin, but it's sufficient to identify that someone's a sinner. And so therefore, as you see the law, it's still at work. It's identifying us that we are not perfect. See, the law is perfection, and we're imperfect. We can't keep the law. Impossible. But God made a way through his son, Jesus. And now Jesus fulfilled that particular part of the law, that in Christ we can fulfill the law. Now, what is the law in the Old Testament? Really, the overlying umbrella of God is that he wanted a relationship with his people. See, salvation in the Old Testament is salvation by grace through faith. By grace through faith in the God of Israel. And in the New Testament, by grace through faith in the God who is now, we know, Yahweh, Curios Jesus, just as it was in the Old Testament. And it's the thematic structure that goes from Old Testament to New Testament we call continuity, connecting the two. And so it's progressive. And as we see that, we understand that there's types of Christ in the Old Testament that bring forth Christ in the New. But when he says in Exodus 34, 6, abounding in love and faithfulness, they're a Hebrew equivalent to truth and grace. And so how do we understand this? We know because the Pharisees... And the experts of the law were people that Jesus had tension with. You and I know as we look in through the Gospels, we see that. We see that the Pharisees represented rules and regulations, history and tradition, ceremonial laws, a zeal for God, ethnic background and culture, close-minded, stubborn and stiff-necked people, prideful, arrogant, and authoritative. 
See, they believe that the salvation of Christ or salvation to God can be attained by keeping rules and regulations. If we just do it the way we've always done it, then we're going to be fine. See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus was stepping in and saying, this has to stop. My Father in heaven does not receive this. When they heard that in chapter, John, or, or chapter 5 of John, they were plotting to kill him. Why? Because he was claiming to be the Messiah. When he said, my father, that's a claim of deity. And Jesus, throughout the gospel, was doing that. And although this tension would occur in the right standing with God, they believed people had to live according to that truth of the law to keep a good record or just be good to my neighbor next door. How often as Christians do we try to do that? That tension of grace and truth. We want to live by the truth, and we think if we just live by the truth and do that which is always right, then God is going to be gracious on us. But do we forget what's grace? Unmerited favor? Do we ever earn grace? That's the paradox. That's the tension that exists between the two. And when we look at truth, we know that the Father is truth. We know Jesus is truth. We know the Holy Spirit is truth. The message of the gospel is considered truth in the New Testament, the word of truth. Throughout the whole New Testament, it's highlighted. But when we think that if we keep a truth, that God is pleased with that. But we have to be careful. Can we keep a truth? Are we capable in and of ourselves, in our own power, to keep the truth? How did we come into relationship with God? By keeping a truth? Or by the grace of God? And in keeping with the truth, who do we have now that's residing in us? The third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit who lives in us? When we're walking in the truth, even in 1 John, John, the same one who wrote John, wrote 1 John, saying walking in the truth in the life, are those who are without sin. Those who are not living in habitual sin. They're in fellowship with God. So when we're walking in the truth, we're in fellowship with God by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, that paradox that exists, it's not half truth and half grace. We need the full truth and the full grace. Even in our sanctification, we need grace upon grace. No one in this room, no one who claims to know Christ can say they can do it in their own power because it's impossible. Because then we wouldn't need Jesus and we wouldn't need the power of the Holy Spirit. It's saying to God, hey God, thanks for the Holy Spirit. He can go now. I can do this all on my own. We can, I can just walk in the truth. Why? Because Lord, I got a history here. I've been 40 years in the Lord. I know how it works now. I know how to do it. Do you know, it reminds me of a, of a, of a professor back in Bible college. He went to Philadelphia College of Bible. It's known as Karen University. He got through school, and he told me, he goes, you know, Bruno, he goes, I got to confess something to you. This is about 25, 30 years ago. He said, I wasn't saved when I was in Bible college. I looked at him. I said, what are you, crazy? You weren't saved? He says, you're a professor now. You love the Lord. You're an elder of a church. I mean, you're, you know. He goes, yeah, he goes, but I played the game like many of the students did. I said, how'd you do that? He goes, I just knew what to say and how to do it. It's a culture. He goes, you can just live in the culture, say the right things, do the right things, walk away, and never have a relationship with God. 
We can all do it. It can be simple. If you sit in that culture long enough, you can play it. See, God does transformation work in the heart of an individual. Grace is transformational work. And it's got to happen when the truth identifies that we're sinners. But the truth also can set us free through grace. And that's what we want to try to see even in this situation here as we look at the narrative in chapter 8. Let's look at that narrative very quickly in chapter 8. 7.53 through 8.11. If you will, just look with me at this particular passage here. Now Jesus, again, as he's been in confrontations with the Pharisees in chapter 5, and then also as we look in chapter 7, and he goes into chapter 8 as well, talking to the Pharisees. There's some tense moments He talks to them in great truth. He's highlighting that. But he's trying to highlight a particular passage here um, that is important, as we see in the scriptures, about grace. But we'll see in the passage, hopefully, that there's truth and grace and not simply grace. So if you'll look with me to verse 53 of 7, which is tied in there in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then they went each to its own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this isn't something he often did. He went around the temple. He taught. He was a rabbi. He shared the truth. He shared it in ways that were just, you know, amazing from where the people who were Pharisees and experts of the law. Even at age 12, he had that all laid out. They noticed that he was a teacher called by God. And then it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So they stop. Because in the law, it says that not just the woman, but also the man who was involved in the extramarital affair or committing of adultery. They probably could be possible they weren't married. But highlighting this, the Pharisees were coming to test Jesus. They were testing him to see if he knew how to respond according to the law. They were ready to stone the woman. Rightfully so, according to the law, it says to stone the woman if she's caught in the act. So as they bring this forth to him, they always had question about Jesus, whether he would uphold the law. Now, here is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who created them. He's in flesh, and they're trying to test and pinpoint and, 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 and try, to, try to set corner up their, their creator. Can you imagine? They're trying to be smarter than the creator. They're trying to have more wisdom than the creator. And here, rightfully so, as the scribes were, they were sharing the truth. Laid out, it was the truth. And so when we understand that, we know that in Deuteronomy 22 through 24, 22 chapter 2 through 22 and 24, and then Leviticus 20 verse 10 alludes to that. And then it says, and it goes on, and and as we look at it, we look at the Pharisees as a group. They're a truth-oriented people. Do we have those people today in our world? Yes. When people say, I just tell it like it is, I'll keep it real, I'm telling the truth. That's great. I think it's a great thing. Some of you are more truth-oriented based. 
Some of you are more grace-oriented. Okay, that's, that's good. We need truth, we need grace. But how does that highlight it? I mean, what, is it, what does it mean to be truth-oriented? So I have a few thoughts here. And the Pharisees were truth-oriented. They, they had a clear understanding between right and wrong. They, they said, this is the law, this is what is shared out. They're judgmental in nature. The letter of the law must be fulfilled. Doctrine-driven, right and wrong, keep it real. Life groups are just not as important because it's too relational. If we would, uh, you know, say that it's something of today. Critical, impatient with believers' growth. Why? Because they're more interested in truth, truth truth-oriented base, where they want the truth, the word of God to be laid out. Prideful, divisive, and lack of love. When you come, or any one of us come in a manner of truth orientation with no grace, this is how we could come off. Now, for grace, I'm not going to let you off the hook here, because as difficult as it is for some of us who are more truth-oriented, there's also some of us who may be grace-oriented. Feelings and hope are the most important thing, not truth. It's all about feelings and hope. You struggle to obey the truth at times because you really don't know what the truth is. So you're leaning towards grace because it's feeling-oriented. Don't want to know much about the theological truths because it's non-emotional, it's rigid, and it demonstrates unloving results. These all can be true. You're sympathetic. You're allowing others to continue in sin. You're allowing others to continue in apathy. Afraid of being strict and afraid what people will say of you. Reputation-driven. Anything-goes mentality in order to keep peace. No conflict, no contention. Now, each one of us can have this. Believe it or not, I've been accused of being too grace-oriented. And a lot of you can laugh and say, wow, really? Some people look at me and say, wow, you can be a little bit too gracious. My wife thinks I'm a little too gracious. I'm like, whoa, because I can come off real hard and aggressive. But you know what? This isn't, in the manner, this isn't the manner about keeping truth or grace. It is the manner by which we come off. Because we all need truth. If we didn't have truth, we couldn't be saved. Because the truth identifies that we're sinners. And if we didn't have grace, we couldn't be saved. Because it's by the grace of God that we can enter into relationship with God. See, truth identifies, truth is the warning sign. Truth is the sign that says, watch out, don't step over this cliff. You make one more step, you're falling over 100 feet down. Grace is that if you fall down, there's ambulances and people down there to save you from not dying. See, we need both. So if you've identified with either one, that's okay. Because each one of us have that. And there's tension between grace and truth. Here's the problem that we may have with tension. We try to solve it instead of managing it. That's where we spend most of our energy, trying to solve, well, I want to be truthful, but I want to be gracious, but then should I be gracious or should I be truthful? We have to manage that. Whichever one we are, we have to consider going the other way. And I think that that's what's happened here in this particular situation, because now we stop in this narrative and say, we have this identified. The Pharisees are truth-oriented. Now, is Jesus then more leaning grace-oriented? Well, let's find out. 
Because in verse 6, it says, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, there is a point where he's writing. Some scholars believe that it was in reference to Jeremiah 17, 13. It says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written on or in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some scholars believe that Jesus was writing out the sins of the people there present because he knew them. He's omniscient, omnipresent. He's God in flesh, so he's able. Now, I don't know. We don't know, but there's some scholars that see that. And then there's, there's another one that says in Exodus 23, verse 1, it says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. Because here, these guys are testing Jesus to give in to stoning this woman because she was caught in adultery. Can you imagine today if we were caught in sin, every time we were caught in sin, someone was ready to pick up a stone? I wouldn't be here in front of you right now. <laughs> I'd be stoned to death. I can assure you that. Because <laughs> I sin often. Whether it be in my thoughts or whether I say something I shouldn't say. But can you imagine? Because when we are offended, we want truth. When we are the ones who offend, we want grace. See, we need, we need both. And in this case, Jesus was doing both. Watch what he does here. And as they continued and continued on, and they tried to pressure him, verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, wait a minute. That's not what it says in the law. That's not what it says in the law. Jesus added a stipulation there. Because what he said was, okay, you have a right. You can stone her right now. She was caught in adultery. But now if you don't have any sin, be ready to pick it up. See, he wasn't denying the fact that there was sin there. He wasn't denying the fact there was truth that she was caught in sin. But he said, okay, you without sin now be the... Meaning, you who are perfect, cast a stone. See, if someone can judge someone else, they have to be without sin to judge them. Watch my smile now. Because we judge people all day long. We gossip, we judge, we, we all do it. We all do it. We do it in some kind of form. But can you imagine what God is saying to each one of us? How can we do that and judge when we know that we have sin in our own lives? We sit in porn fingers, but we got three coming back at us, three times against us. And see, God is trying to say, wait a minute, Jesus is holding up to the truth. And he's holding these guys accountable. And as we know, it says this, and at once more than he bent down and wrote on the ground. But they heard it and they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Because the older ones probably had more to think about. Because we who are getting older know that we've committed a ton of sin. We look back and realize, wow, there's so much in my life I can't even imagine. But God is still, look at how gracious Jesus is. Watch this now. In verse 10, he said, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. See, Jesus didn't, see, when we look at it and we think about this whole thing about grace and truth, grace and truth, we have to understand something. The gospel is good news. That's what it means. Truth is a reliable statement on a specific subject. The truth of the gospel is this. Man is condemned to sin. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. That's all truth, the Messiah. Jesus died in the place of sin to appease the Father's anger against sin. Truth and grace, the work of Christ. And lastly, it goes this. When a man trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he is no longer condemned, but forgiven of sin and receives the gift of eternal life. Romans 6.23. And so in our walk with God, if we've entered into relationship with God in truth and grace, how should we continue to minister? In truth and in grace. See, what happens a lot in churches is that people are afraid to offend other people if they call them out. But it's not the calling out that's the problem. It's the manner by which we do it. If I go up to someone and say, man, you are a sinner, dude. Come on, man, I can't believe how much you sin. Dude, you're off. You're bad, man. It's like, dude, man, get out of my face now. You're going to respond because you're going to say, that's wrong. Why are you calling me out like that? But if you go close and you have a relationship with someone, you say, hey, bro, um, you're my accountability partner. Something came back to me in my email. You were looking at things you shouldn't have been looking at. Hey, man, you're married with three kids. Dude, man, I can't let this go. I love you too much. I want to hold you accountable now. You got sin in your life. But I want to walk with you through it. You know why I want to walk you through it? Because I've been there before. Grace. That's grace. Because I who walked through it before, if I'm the person there, I know what it's like to go through that struggle. That's grace. Truth is holding someone accountable. Grace is saying, I'm going to be with you through it. Truth, not minute, truth without grace is saying, you're a sinner, I'm out. Grace is, ah, don't worry about it. Say so you sin, no problem. Everybody sins, no big deal. Let's keep moving on. Dude, man, you're going to sin. Are we all sinners? Are we all, hey, don't worry about it if you don't pray too much. No big deal. Hey, it's all going to work out. When the Bible says in 1 Samuel 20, 12, or in 1 Samuel, Samuel said himself, if we don't pray, we're sinning. See, truth identifies grace is saying, I'm going to come alongside of you, parakaleo. I'm going to love you through it. That's what we're called to do. Jesus did that here. See, we have to understand something. The, the gracious person would have just said, don't worry about it. But the one who's going to do both, as I just stated, Jesus did that. He said, listen, no one's here to condemn you, and neither do I. Meaning I have the right to condemn you. I'm God, but I'm not going to condemn you. And see, that's where we can create an atmosphere of unity and love and peace when we can all admit that we need Jesus. When we can call people out but walk them through it. Or when people love you enough to call you out. I've had those people in my life. I've made missteps in my life that I regret. But I had a brother who came to me 
and said, bro, man, I love you too much. You can't do this anymore. And I cried and I cried out to God and he did the best thing. He administered to me by saying the, telling the truth, but then was gracious enough to work with me. Even when I was younger in Bible college, same thing. I was, not, I was mistreating people and I didn't even know. And a dude just called me out. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. But each one of us have to understand we have a calling. Each one of us is a believer in Christ. We have the calling to tell the truth and we have the calling to be gracious. You know, what does it look like if I asked the question, what would the culture of a church look like if a church was created towards graciousness, just total, well, I'm sorry, truth. Let's just say, what, what culture is created in a church oriented towards truth? Let's just talk of what would it look like. Five things. If a church was oriented towards truth, there'd be no room for mistakes. Expectations were perfection. No rooms for mistakes. No room for change. No change around here. We're doing it just like it's always been. No room for change. No room for other methods. None. We're just, this is the way we're going to be. This is the truth. Truth strong, weak, and grace. Quick to judge, slow to forgive. That's what a truth-oriented church would be only. Truth only. Now, for the gracious church, there'd be no boundaries. Everything goes. Emotionally driven. You're fed by the emotion. Whether someone's angry, frustrated, doesn't matter. You're moved by that. You're sympathetic. You're sympathetically driven. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be sympathetic or emotional. It's just that you're driven by that. Apathy sets in because you don't have any truth. Apathy sets in. And reputation becomes more important than the truth. We're always being concerned about what other people say. Teenagers go through that. Young people go through that. Constantly worried about what other people think. But here's the thing. What would it look like if we created a culture of forgiveness? I got five T's here. One is truth. Clear and concise truth. Tell it like it is. Truth. Manner of the which way we do it is loving, but we tell the truth. Two, we're transparent. It's a safe place. Sharing our sin, a place of hope and help, coming alongside, but offering that culture of transparency, admitting we fail. There's room for mistakes. It's okay. We sin. Come on, don't we know that? That's why Jesus came. See, if the truth is we're sinners, then we need grace. Why are we deminimizing grace by trying to uphold truth? If you have truth, you need grace. If we eliminate grace, then there's no gospel. You eliminate truth, there's no gospel. See, what we call paradox, it needs to come together just like Jesus himself. Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. We too need to have that. A church needs to create that atmosphere of forgiveness. Three, we need to be tender, listening, loving, affectionate, but yet firm. I didn't get that all my life. In fact, I never got it from my parents. Oh, my mom. My mom was great. And how I miss her every day. Because I could do no wrong. That woman loved me. 
that's the kind of God I have. My mother represented Christ to me so often. That's the kind of God I have. I don't fault my father. But the tender love of God is what's always moved me. Because no matter how often I fail, he's got arms wide open saying, I'll, I'll correct you, son. I love you. That's what I try to tell my son. It's okay, son. I'm right here. I love you, man. It's okay. That's compassion. That's what moves us when we have a God that loves us. But what I love about God is he's for tenacious. He's firm. He's persistent. He holds to the truth. That's what I love about God. He will not. He always has my back, and he will never let down his truth. That's what keeps us together. It's that which binds us together. And lastly, training. This is what I love about the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Just look with me there. This is a beautiful, beautiful verse that goes into a second verse that I just absolutely love. It's one that I hold on to often and I'm reminded of in my life. What the word, because I love the word of God. I love truth. But you know what? What I love about truth is that it doesn't leave me there telling me I'm wrong. Here's what it says. The word of truth, the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's God who breathes scripture. It's not man who wrote about God. It's God who wrote through man. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. That's what I love about it. You can reprove me, Lord, but I need you to correct me because I need correction. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this tension that exists, walking between truth and grace, can be a place where we can really come together in harmony. God uses that tension to draw us closer to him. The tension that existed with the adulterous woman she came to know and find Jesus for who he was. And through that tension, she was able to find that she was no longer condemned, but she was saved and forgiven. Wouldn't it be great if a church can create an atmosphere, a culture that is forgiving, a people who can come together? I know, and I know the history of this church and many others that continually fall into this pattern where we just can't let go. But remember this in forgiveness. I was talking to my friend. My buddy called me this morning from Texas at 6.15, which was 5.15 at his time. And I took the phone. I said, dude, man, you okay? Is everything all right? You're calling me real early. Anybody? He goes, nah, man. He goes, isn't it 8 o'clock over there? I'm like, no, dude. It's 6.15 in the morning. and It's 5.15 at your time. Did you wake up right this morning? And he's like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't even realize that. But he wanted to share something with me. And he even gave me the permission to share this with you this morning. He said this. A year ago, February... The Lord, I was in prayer, and the Lord was putting on my heart to call my friend. I mean, it was like, you need to call him now. The Holy Spirit was just jumping on top of me saying, hey, you got to do this. So out of the blue, I call him. And here I call him, and we spend two hours on the phone. And here he opens up about his whole life. Lo and behold, he was caught up in things for the last three years that I didn't even know about. We had been talking, but he never shared it with me because he was a little bit closed, introverted, but he came out and he started sharing. 
And the Lord used me that night to call him to speak truth, but yet grace to him. I spoke the truth in love, but I finished it up and dressed it up with some grace. Two weeks later, he came to my book signing, got on a plane and came up. Today, a year later, he's walking in truth and grace. He's ministering to other people again. He and I were buddies. We worked together in my company, 2005 to 2008. We were really close. We still are. He said, dude, man, it started with you last year when you called me. Can you remind me again this morning? We were on the phone for about an hour, driving up. Truth and grace. That's what we need. Forgiveness. He's got a lot more stuff in his life. I don't have to get into. But it starts with truth and grace. Could it be unimaginable what a church could be like? Unity beyond we could ever imagine with truth and grace. You know the great him, Amazing Grace. We know John Newton wrote it, but he was a slave driver. He's a terrible man at one point. But he got saved. And his life changed, and he wrote an amazing hymn in the later years of his life. But he wrote the key word in that hymn, saved a wretch like me. See, the truth was he was a wretch. So are all we. But the grace saved, not condemned. Doesn't matter what we've done, just matters what Christ did. Doesn't matter how much sin you have in your life. It's the awesome grace of God. I could not stand in front of you and be a pastor if you would have even known an eighth of what I used to do. Right, brother? (laughs) You guys don't even want to know. I'm looking at you. You don't want to know. All I can tell you, it's by the grace of God that I stand up here. And I'm still reminded of that every day. I live by the grace of God. That's our salvation. Truth and grace. I want to encourage you as we go to prayer, because we're entering into our communion here, to take that moment. Tonight we're going to have a time of prayer. Tonight we're going to have a time to confess, time to recognize our need for Christ. Well, I want to encourage you, maybe this is the time for you to renew your heart with Christ, to realize that the tension that exists with truth and grace can start today. It just needs to start by saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I can't do this without you. None of us can. It's impossible. I don't care how old you are or how young you are or how much testosterone young man you have in you, you think you can conquer the world. We older people can tell you you can. So here, that's the truth. So here's the thing. But the grace is I can help you with it. And so as we think about that, I want to encourage you to be thinking on that, that step of faith. Because it is a step of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us this morning about truth and grace, the tension that exists that will never end, the tension that we can't solve, but we pray the tension that we can manage in our lives. God, thank you because sometimes we want to tell the truth without grace and sometimes we just want to be gracious without truth. 
And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand just as Jesus was full of truth and grace, we'll learn that hopefully in the next two weeks, that Lord, we too can be your people with truth and grace. And so Lord, I pray that as we enter into a time of communion to be represented of what you did for us by dying on the cross when your body was broken and your blood was spilt on our behalf. God, help us to be reminded even this morning of how great it is to be together as a body of believers, coming together, being reminded of what you did for us, Jesus, the awesome salvation that we have, full of truth and grace coming to us. In Jesus' name, amen.